This is Digital Health Today, episode 24. We always talk about innovation, but actually if we took what exists today and applied it and deployed it for the benefit of citizens and patients, we already have plenty of really good opportunities now to improve people's lives. Welcome to Digital Health Today, the podcast focused on the leaders, innovators and technologies transforming healthcare today and tomorrow. Find us online at digitalhealthtoday.com. This episode is brought to you by Bayer Grants for Apps. Bayer Grants for Apps invites you to submit your innovative healthcare projects. Selective startups will receive funding, office space, and mentorship by top Bayer professionals. Apply online at grants4apps.com. That's grants, the number four apps.com. But hurry, applications close on May 31st, 2017. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Digital Health Today. My name is Dan Kendall and my guest today is Brian O'Connor. Brian is the chair of the European Connected Health Alliance, otherwise known as the ECH Alliance. That's a not-for-profit membership organization that, despite its name, is actually global and facilitates collaborative working to bring about meaningful change in health and social care. Brian has a lot of knowledge that he delivers on this podcast, but before we jump into that, I just wanted to go over a few announcements and reminders. First of all, can you believe how fast 2017 is going by? It is May already, summer is right around the corner, and I feel like it won't be long before we're getting ready for Halloween. Be that as it may, early in the year, I let you know that I've been working on some great things for you, the digital health community, and indeed things have been coming together in the first months of this year. Perhaps most importantly, the audience for this podcast is growing, so thank you very much for tuning in. Along with that growth, we get more interest from sponsors and partners who want to engage with the Digital Health Today community, which then provides more resources for us to work on and create more great content and materials for you. It's a virtuous circle, and each part is increasing the benefit to the next. So again, thank you for listening, and thanks for our sponsors for sponsoring the show and providing the resources that allow us to put more energy and time into creating this platform to inform, connect, and accelerate. You, as a listener, are the most important part of this whole mix, and there are just two things that I ask you to do to help continue to grow the success of this platform. First of all, subscribe to our community. Just go to digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash join, or frankly, click on any of the number of links on our website and pop in your email address. Sometimes it might ask you for your first name or something, so it's really easy to do. Bada bing, bada boom, you'll be in and part of our growing global community. That's one thing. The next thing takes just a little more effort, and I mean, it's just a little more effort. You can do it right on your phone, and that is, you guessed it, leave a review on iTunes. Why is this important? Why do I keep going on about this? Well, Apple wants to see that not just the listener numbers are going up, and again, thank you for listening and for sharing and tweeting and talking about the show, but Apple also wants to see that the reviews are positive and growing. We've got some great reviews in there, but we need some more. So if you can leave a great review on iTunes, please do so. It takes less than a minute. There's a link at the bottom of each podcast on the website that will take you to iTunes. Just open that up, click on the ratings and reviews, and bam, five-star review, couple of nice words, and you're creating digital health karma, and I thank you. If you have other feedback and you want to pass it to me directly, your reviews on iTunes are helpful, and I appreciate them, but I can't carry on a conversation with you there. So if you have a complaint, comment, you want to send me your product to test out, you want to send me some fresh-baked cookies, Whatever it might be, I'd love to hear from you, especially on how to make the show even better for you. So get in touch on email at dan at digitalhealthtoday.com or on Twitter at healthtechdan. Okay, just a few other things. I'll try to go through them quickly. I'm working with some of my partners and colleagues to put together some interesting webinars and training materials for you. Now, this is particularly aimed at startups, early stage businesses, and people who are developing the tech and solutions that's going to make tomorrow's healthcare better than it is today. 
I have a whole range of topics laid out that we can cover, and I want to hear what you think of them, but we don't have time to do it on this podcast. We need to get to the show and on to the next guest. So in order to get that conversation started, once you've signed up on the website, we'll bounce over the ideas on the tools we're developing to deliver the resources and training that will help jumpstart your business to new levels of success. Okay, I just want to give a shout out to Aline Noise and Nick Adkins of the Pink Socks Tribe. Nick Atkins out in Portland, Oregon, sent me a few pairs of his famous pink socks, and it was Aline Noise who suggested that I receive them. So thanks to you both. I love the socks. I'm wearing them and sharing the Pink Socks tribe far and wide. If you're not familiar with Pink Socks and the GSD movement that Nick Atkins started, I have a link to his website on the show notes. So just go to digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash 24. Let's go Pink Socks and GSD. Get stuff done. All right. Anything else? No Let's go. Here we are. My guest today was born in Belfast, Northern Ireland, and has spent his career as a consultant, manager, and investor in both private and public companies. As head of the ECH Alliance, he is creating a platform for change and disruption across Europe, China, and most recently, they've started work in North America, working in both the U.S. and Canada. He'll fill us in more about that. Brian O'Connor lived and worked in Hong Kong for 12 years, first as a corporate fixer, then he went on to create the largest private healthcare company in Hong Kong, with over 700 GP practices, 3 million patient consultations a year, and covering everything from general practitioners to dentistry to Chinese medicine and surgery. He understands that overcoming cultural and other barriers within healthcare is a key component of solving the problems faced around the world. He's got a great way to deliver news that can be otherwise difficult and frustrating to hear, but he does it in such a way that encourages and excites the change that is so badly needed in healthcare systems around the world. I'm very pleased to announce that ECH Alliance and Digital Health Today have teamed up and we're working together now to facilitate and promote the work being done globally to improve health and social care. There's so much work to be done and ECH Alliance members are a core part of the Digital Health Today community. So we're working together for the greater good to amplify the work each of our teams are doing. You can read more about the ECH Alliance and our partnership online. Check out all the show notes at digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash 24. And now here's the interview with Brian O'Connor. Brian, thanks very much for joining me. Welcome to the program. Delighted to. Brian, I've given a little bit of background to the listeners. Can you give us maybe a two-minute tour of your career and the personal journey that's taken you to where you are today? Well, I think the first thing I should say is I've been very fortunate to be able to do lots of things that I thought I could never do. And that's been, to some extent, Irish luck. But on the other hand, putting myself in places and being willing to take on challenges, which if I'd thought long enough about them, I may not have taken on, to be honest with you. Sometimes people analyze things to death and are too cautious. So I've been fortunate in being able to take whatever skills I've got and seeing situations from a helicopter view, working out what needs to be done, not necessarily knowing the end point, because sometimes we spend too much time trying to figure out where we're going to. You've got to figure out first where you are. And I guess I've been doing that all my life of seeing opportunities, approach them in a disciplined way and learning, I guess, as I've gone along. So I've been very fortunate. How is it that you came about getting the opportunity in Hong Kong? Well, I went to Hong Kong. uh, This was on my third retirement, actually. But in 1991-92, I decided I would literally stop and think of what else I might do. But in the end, I was asked by a major bank there to go to Hong Kong to take on a group of companies which had been were in serious difficulties, both financially and from a regulation point of view. So my job was to go in as a corporate doctor see what was happening. The point is I'd never lived in Hong Kong. I'd been there twice on holiday, but I loved the whole buzz, the energy, the can-do attitude there. 
and everything's about business there, as I'm sure you know. So I was fortunate to end up there and I just fell in love with the place. The interesting thing was that as I spent four years working in, in this particular company, I'd gone out to help rescue operate in 11 countries around the world that had 400 operating subsidiaries, 47 of which were in China. So it gave me a wonderful landscape and a real learning opportunity. And I realized then that I loved the way people in that part of the world did business. They do it quite differently from us. We all can learn from each other, but I learned a lot about how to do business as a result, I decided to stay on in Hong Kong, and I realized that one of the sectors which needed corporatized, organized, was the healthcare sector. In Hong Kong, there is an equivalent of an NHS. It's called the Hospital Authority. So anybody in Hong Kong, irrespective of means, is entitled to free care in the acute care hospitals. However, the GP, the, the physician network, are all individuals, private businesses, as they are in many parts of the world, but they were not connected. They weren't collaborating so I decided to buy three of the largest medical practices in Hong Kong. And because I was not a doctor, of course, that had its own legal difficulties in that practices can only be bought and owned by qualified doctors. So we created a new legal structure, which we had approved by the Attorney General. And then we bought three of the practices in a very short period around 1997, which you may recall was also the time of the handover mm -hmm. uh, from Britain to China. And so it was the week of the handover we made our first acquisitions during a time when there was a five-day holiday in Hong Kong and everybody was just enjoying the historic impact. I decided to use it to buy some businesses. So by the time we restarted work, uh, we were then the largest medical practice in Hong Kong. And I learned a lot about working with doctors. Uh, some people use the term herding cats because these, after all, are individual entrepreneurs who happen to be doctors. It's therefore very difficult to get them to collaborate. We went out and we got contracts from many of the major corporations in Hong Kong who actually pay for the GP care and other types of care for their employees. So it's, it's a sort of a, a corporate medical plans. And we ended up, I think we were doing 3 million patient consultations a year. So I had the experience of then bringing together the different aspects of healthcare, which were not joined up. And that was things like GP practice, uh, physical checkups, dental work, physiotherapy, traditional Chinese medicine, anything that we all use but was not in one place or could not be accessed easily. So we created a new model and it took off, worked very well, and we ended up with a business with 120 million US of revenue and about 12 million US of uh, EBITDA. Well, I know that you're a really big proponent about understanding the cultural issues and differences and working across yes. them to address them. I think the story that you just gave really shows to a very extreme degree what those challenges and opportunities can be like. I mean, you made these acquisitions at a very tumultuous time, frankly, in Hong Kong's history while that changeover was happening from Britain to China, at five days of, of holiday time for, for everyone there. Um, you see this as an opportunity. And I remember when we spoke just recently, you explained something to me about a word, and I recalled that it was something I heard in a clip from John F. Kennedy from years ago, something about the Chinese word for opportunity. Yes, they have a word uh, which is Wei Zhe. Now, there's some dispute by certain experts as to whether it actually means the following, but what matters is that the Chinese people believe that Wei Zhe means opportunity, but it also means crisis. So one of the things I've taken back from my time in Hong Kong and China is that Wherever there is a crisis, in other words, there's something not working well even, there is always an opportunity for someone to put it right. And I have taken that philosophy since that time 
into every single thing I've done. And I still do that because if you needed a coherent, cohesive, one-stop shop healthcare company in Hong Kong, it did not exist at that time. And the creation of that, therefore, was coping with a problem or a crisis and turning it into what turned out to be a very profitable, effective and efficient opportunity. So you were born and lived and worked in the UK. You spent 12 years over in Hong Kong. You mentioned that you spent time looking at some of the HMOs and, and going to the US and understanding some of the practices that they have in the US. But let's go forward. So you left Hong Kong, you came back to the UK. We're going to talk about the ECH Alliance and what you're actually mm -hmm. doing there. But let's talk first of all about what you were facing that drove you to think of ECH Alliance as a solution. Let's talk about the problem first. What were you involved with that was creating some of the challenges that you were trying to spot new opportunities for? When I came back from Hong Kong, I was still going back and forward out there for, for a couple of years afterwards, just as a non-exec director and so on, because I didn't want to lose my connection to Asia, because I think we can all learn a lot from that part of the world. What I found frustrating and it's often I go into businesses often because I see not only a crisis but the sheer uh, anger you get sometimes when things are blindingly obviously not working and everybody complains about them but does nothing about them so, so in other words they say well there's nothing much I can do I'm only in this position or that position and I think that's absolute nonsense I take the view that everybody can change just about everything and though that sounds a very sweeping statement I have seen people who have had determination, knew exactly what they wanted to change. So in my case, I started to actually understand a little bit about technology. Now, I need to say immediately, I am absolutely useless at technology. And indeed, if we ever have a fuse or a, a, the lights go out here at home, my wife says, do nothing, sit there. And she goes, <laughs> fixes it. So, but, but what I realized was when you sit back and I had a little bit of time because I was in sort of semi-retirement at the time, you realize that the biggest obstacle to progress are people because people create the culture. The risk-averse nature of the cultures in many uh, European and other countries is exactly what is stopping the deployment and implementation of some of the most brilliant ideas around. And I thought to myself, why should we allow these blockages to win? So for no particular reason, because there wasn't really anything financial for me, I decided to change that. And I, you may say that could be arrogance or it could be determination, you decide. But I decided it could be changed. And what became blindingly obvious was you've got to create something which is a forum and a permanent forum for the people who are themselves perhaps in silos to meet on a regular basis, to get to know each other, to build a relationship, to build trust, and then start to share the crisis or the problems with each other, and then collectively realize that between them, they have all the pieces necessary to solve it. Now, that I then thought, well, what? okay, you think you've got a solution, Bran, so are you just going to sit there and be like everyone else and say, I know how to do things, but don't actually do anything? So I decided, therefore, to create the European Connector Health Alliance. And it was an attempt as a not-for-profit organization to bring academia, industry at all levels, startups, SMEs, multinationals, uh, bring in governments, procurement departments, bring in economic development agencies, venture capital, private equity, patient groups, etc. In other words, all of the many elements that make up this very complex sector. 
And what we decided to do was be a membership organization because we wanted to employ some people and pay them. But we wanted also to be one that doesn't just send out four newsletters a year. So we created the concept of ecosystems. And we were criticized five, six years ago for using the word ecosystems because no one else was using it at the time. Everybody uses ecosystems now. But the idea of an ecosystem, uh, if you look back into, into the definition of it in nature, is that how it becomes interdependent and how each element of it contributes to something else. And in our case, we created our first ecosystem in Manchester, England, on the back of great work being done by the uh, Connected Health Department within the University of Manchester. Okay, so let's pause right there for a second, Brian. Please. So so how, when did you form the ECH Alliance? What year was that? I think it was six years ago. So yeah. relatively recently. I mean, yes, it wasn't, yes. wasn't a terribly long time ago. We're, we're going to dive into some of the details and some of the, some of the work. Sure, and sure. you decided, well, let's let's try to take this on. You said something that could sort of make people skin crawl in terms of the fact that it's sometimes people that are holding these things up. And I know that we don't sometimes like to vocalize that. But one of the things I love about talking with you, Brian, is that you have a very wonderful way of positioning things <laughs> that are very <laughs> candid and, and forthright and somehow don't seem in any way offensive. <laughs> so I'm I, delighted I to hear way, that. <laughs> I love the way you put things. Um, but obviously, you're absolutely right. I mean, people are often the, the obstacles there. And I know sometimes when I was carrying a sales bag for Stryker and, and working mm -hmm. within hospitals, when I was trying to get big sales done, you know, six and seven figure deals, uh, and I would bring all the C-level people together and heads of departments, and sometimes that was the only time they ever sat in a meeting together uh, yes. and, and explained some of these things. So you said maybe it was arrogant, maybe it was a visionary piece on your part. I applaud you having done it. So but where did you get started? What did you actually do? You formed a not-for-profit organization. Yes. Um, you obviously had a great network. What did you yep. do first? What we did was we talked to people. We spent, I must have, we must have spent maybe five, six months actually trying to understand what the needs were, what the issues were. Why was it, for example, if someone had a wonderful, wonderful product or service uh, operating in three or four parts of England, for example, why was it not immediately embraced and accepted in the rest of the UK within the NHS? Why was that? Why was it that certain organizations had come along and spent three years trying to get into the procurement process within the NHS and have given up? And in some cases, either given up or moved to another country where it was easier. And I thought, this cannot be right. And therefore, I, my view, and I hold it very strongly and honestly, is that there are, we always talk about innovation, but actually, if we took what exists today, and applied it and deployed it for the benefit of citizens and patients, we already have plenty of really good opportunities now to improve people's lives. And all too often, you ask yourself, why doesn't that happen? And what we discovered after our, our form of research, we're not talking here about, you know, uh, somebody setting out and doing your usual type of research. I tend not to do that. I do what I call human research. And I sit and listen to people. And I ask them questions. And they look at you sometimes and say, Oh, I've never actually thought about that. And I want to make this point. Many, many, many really good and dedicated people exist throughout the entire sector. Many of them are as frustrated as I am uh, with the lack of action. And there are many reasons for that. They're, they're, they're annoyed at the policies of a government in a particular country. Uh, there's no proper procurement process. It's very risk averse. So you can understand, you listen to all of the this is why it isn't working. You, you, know, you do all that bit. And then you say to them, 
But why can't you change that? And often, though they would like to do that, they cannot afford to take the risk of trying to change the system from within. And so what I realized was if we could give them and their bosses examples of where a system is doing it better somewhere else, then you have more chance of them embracing that and and calling it their own if they wish. Why do they not do that? First of all, they are ignorant of what exists often, not just in another country, sometimes in their own country, sometimes actually in their own region. In their own building. (laughs) Uh, Well, and we have examples where, so what we did next was we listened We then decided, look, you could talk forever, you could research forever, and that's another issue. Sometimes people research things and just, I don't know, just for the sake of research. What we did was we simply got some people who absolutely want to change things but couldn't do it on their own, brought them into a very small meeting. I think it was only 20 people, our first meeting in Manchester, and said, look, we have an idea of trying to create a methodology and a process to make things change. You all want to change but you can't do it on your own. But in the room, if you have, for example, the chief nursing officer, the chief medical officer, the chief executives of six trusts, hospital trusts, if you have GP networks there and community nurses there, and you have startups and SMEs and multinationals, and you have universities, and you've got the procurement authority all in the same room, first thing you do is introduce them to each other. Now, that's very telling that you have to introduce them to each other. And there was one case there where we introduced two academics who realized they were on the same campus, in the same building, had worked for the university for five years each, read each other's publicized public papers, but had never met. One was on the fourth floor, one was on the fifth floor of that building. And that's, I mean, this happens constantly. So our first job was literally to introduce and connect people. By the time we finished the meeting, everybody said, right, now that I know that you exist, right, I can see things we ought to be talking to each other about. And of course, everybody then says, great, we must do something together. And of course, usually what happens, people leave and nothing happens. So we decide to put a wraparound called an ecosystem. So these ecosystems have become permanent. The word permanent is really important because one-off events are very helpful, but you need to build a community. You can't do that without doing having a permanent multi-stakeholder event. And we tend to do these. I was at one... Uh, just a day or two ago in Poland, one another day or two ago in Northern Ireland, where you get the local community coming together and they meet, they build a relationship and then they take it from there. And I think the other thing we learn, and we learn all the time, we, we still see ourselves as a startup in a way, is that if you get people to come together, that's a good start, but it's not enough. You have to have someone stand up and say, here is a need, here is a priority, a crisis, if you like, in our region. I can't solve it my own. I'm just the guy with the money. Is there anybody in this room can tell me, educate me as to what's available in that particular need? Give me solutions. And, and that tends to energize people to feel they're making a real difference. So that's how it started. We'll get right back into the discussion with Brian O'Connor in just a moment. But first, I wanted to tell you about our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Bayer Grants for Apps. One of the things I love about Bayer is that they're really forward thinkers. They're thinking of ways to innovate their business in the industry, and they're not just saying that, they're actually investing and working to do it. How do I mean that? Well, this program is a perfect example. This is the fifth round of the Bayer Grants for Apps program, and the goal is to support innovative healthcare startups and developer teams all around the globe. 
Selected startups receive funding, office space, and mentorship by top Bayer professionals. Now that sounds great, but here's something even better. Applications for the Grants for Apps Accelerator program are now open. Grants for Apps invites you to submit your innovative healthcare projects. What are they looking for? A whole range of things, and they have a full list on the Grants for Apps website. They're looking for solutions that address patient compliance, prevention, healthy habits, patient empowerment, motivation, clinical trials, predictive behavior, and the list goes on. Basically, they're looking for software, hardware, technologies, or processes that can be applied to particular areas contributing to improved health outcomes or pharmaceutical processes. Sound like a fit? Applications are now open, but don't delay. The deadline to apply is May 31st, 2017. Get full details on their website at grantsforapps.com. And even if you're not interested in the Grants for Apps Accelerator, you should still go online and check out their new DealMaker program. That's for more mature teams, startups, and companies, and it's all about creating quality face time between you and Bear experts for one full day. You can learn more about both programs on their website, and you can even apply for both at the same time. Just visit grantsforapps.com or click on the link in the show notes. Now let's jump back to the conversation. So you started ECH Alliance six years ago. You started in the UK with this vision of bringing people together and, and helping them talk. And I agree, sometimes you do need to do that introduction for people within the same building, within the same organization. And also not just the introduction, but also to explain what it is that they do. Uh, yes. Sometimes people don't even understand the, the roles and responsibilities within their own organizations. And sometimes when you're working to deliver that change, whether it's from a sales role or a consulting role or, or you know, a disruptor role like, like yes. you are as the chair of uh, ECH Alliance, sometimes it's a matter of trying to explain to them you're the only one that's going from one section of the hospital to the other, understanding all the problems and trying to piece together solutions. So having them have that discussion with, amongst themselves is a very important piece and also have them articulate what their main questions are or obstacles or challenges that they want to have addressed and discussed in that particular meeting. I agree. This may be my sales focus coming out of my sales <laughs> training, but you know, then trying to revisit that at the end of the meeting and saying, Julie, you had this question. Did we answer that? Yes. And Tim, you had that question. Did we answer that? Do you, do you feel like we need to go into that more? And you try to get everybody to not only say yes, but you want everyone else to hear that, that, that their colleagues' concerns have been addressed. And you've got some next steps identified. I absolutely agree you need to do this on an ongoing basis. But these are not, I mean, we started talking about the UK and, and where you got started in the UK, but you've obviously taken this global in six years. So Give me some idea of the scope of the ECH Alliance now and some of the things that you guys are working on. I guess where we are now is we decided we'd focus on Europe to begin with. And uh, we decided that we would rather ambitiously become the largest membership organization in this sector in Europe. And remember, many organizations were there before us, but most of those organizations we noticed were actually representing what I call a silo. So they might only represent hospitals or they might only represent doctors or they might only represent industry. That is where I, I mean, don't get me wrong, a lot of these people do really good work within their own silo or sector, but it is the breaching of that, it is the, con the connectivity of that across the sectors that matters. So we decided we'd do it across Europe. We then realized that uh, there is quite a lot of funding in Europe for collaboration across borders through the European Commission, through Horizon 2020 and many other programs. To access that money, you have to have cross-border partners. You have to have the ability to know what's going on in different countries in this sector so you can join the dots, as we call it. So we decided we would begin by, you always start from with someone you know. <laughs> and in some countries, we started with just one person that we happen to know. So, for example, we knew a couple of people in Spain and Catalonia, which is well known as a really innovation, innovative 
region for everything, not just, just health. So we knew a few people there. We went and chatted to them, did the same thing, listened to people. Now, as a result, there became a thirst for two things in Catalonia. One, a methodology to bring all of the good things they were doing together to make the introductions and to work on specifics. And above all, also to plug into a ready-made, recognizable international network. So you don't have to sit and wonder if you want to do business in Poland or Germany or Italy or France, who you go to. Because the same mix and matrix of organizations are in each of our ecosystems. So we created the one in Catalonia. We then started to promote them internationally, got them involved in a number of EU projects. And of course, then Manchester then signed an MOU, would you believe, between the greater Manchester area and the Catalonian region, which extended far beyond Connected Health into many more areas and still exists and works today. So what we're trying to do is create the structure and the energy and the direction but we do not think that we can do it all. So you need the organization to realize the benefit and then to start doing it all. That's how it begins to build. And we have about 12,000 people a year now attend our 100 plus events throughout Europe. Wow. Which is big. And the, the, the big advantage of all of this is, as we then realized as we built our ecosystem network, that there was a point at which we couldn't cope with the communications required in that. So we then built what we call into our website, our global connector. So we've got a human network through the ecosystems and we've then got the virtual network. Uh, so we do lots of webinars, lots of blogs, lots of interaction online uh, through the uh, global connector. So this energized people and we then started to get lots of regions coming to us asking why they didn't have an ecosystem. So, you know, from your sales background that if you can point to a couple of successes and you're trying to sell to a new client, what do they say? Does anyone else use this? Show me evidence that it works. You know, all the standard questions. Mm -hmm. We're the, we the, we the same. So we now refer new requests to people like Manchester, you know, Liverpool or Scotland or Ireland or whatever it may be and say, why don't you talk to them? Because the best salespeople are those who already recognize and are enthusiastic about you i know you do a lot of speaking i know you were over in new yes. york not too long ago you've been in the yes. country, uh, all across europe just even this week you've also got a chinese care alliance that that you're a director of and i know you've also expanded west uh into north america and you've got partners within america uh, yes, the united states and yeah. canada so can you tell us about those two regions, uh, both North American and uh, the, the Asian activities? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, it, it's, it's the same principle. It just happened to be a different geographic location. I absolutely believe that there are many, there are always solutions to the needs. The difficulty is it is very difficult to know that they exist. And even if you know that something is good, uh, say, in New York, it doesn't mean that somebody in the UK or anywhere in Europe knows how to access the people in New York. So what we did was a friend of ours had set up the New York eHealth Collaborative, a man called Dave Whitlinger. And essentially, he had done what we had done on a bigger scale, obviously, in one particular city and state. So the New York eHealth Collaborative became effectively the platform, uh, the integrated platform for all healthcare in New York and New York State. Big undertaking funded to some extent by the money, if you remember, that came from the Affordable Care Act uh, to help have these health information exchanges created. 
He embraced that, did it, and then persuaded all of the players in health to come together and all the suppliers, the vendors, and the different entities. As a result of that, I knew we could learn a lot from New York. I also knew that they could learn a lot from us. So we became their window into Europe. They then became our window into that part of the States. And that relationship continues to today. They have done the most amazing work. When you think that they have got, I think it's eight and a half or nine million residents of New York and New York State online with their EHRs, 150 companies working on the same platform, an accelerator program funded in part by the New York City Pension Fund to attract organizations and companies that come and service that. We actually promote that in Europe. A number of our European companies now work in New York as a direct result of having that access into New York. So to be honest with you, Dan, it's a different geographic location, but it's the same principle. Good things, problems have been solved elsewhere. The transference of that knowledge and learning and access to the individuals who made it happen seems to me to be the essence of connectivity and moving to deployment and bettering people's lives. So we did that in New York. I like the way you put that as well, because you you mentioned that you're working with this that with the New York eHealth Collaborative, and that that's giving you insight into that region of the U.S. Correct. And I know when I work with a lot of U.S. companies that want to come to Europe and European companies that want to come to the U.S., that often European companies will think if I get FDA and I can get this used in Boston, then the world's my oyster and I'll get this sold everywhere. And similarly, people from the US look into Europe and think if I can get a CE mark, then I can operate everywhere. Yes. And uh, we we know, as you described earlier, that even, you know, NHS England, for example, is very different, you know, within the same building or within the same region. So New York is a wonderful place. It's a wonderful region. They're doing a lot of great work there. But it is not homogenous across the U.S. that oh, can't, no, no. can't extrapolate no. that sort of experience into other parts of the country. What's happening in Canada? What are you doing up there? Well, we, just, we were prospected by people in Canada who had seen what we had done in New York, went up to Canada, did my usual, went around, spent time, two or three visits, meeting lots of people, and then realized that we in Europe, especially in Europe, can learn a lot from Canada. Why? Their healthcare system reimbursement system is very similar to many of the systems in different countries in Europe. I know there are many differences in Europe, but if you look at the UK NHS and the Canadian health system and a number of other, let's call them socialist type system in Europe, the comparisons are direct and therefore it means you can learn. So we started that about a year and a half ago, I think it was. We, we tend to start an alliance organization first, then we start filling in beneath it with ecosystems. So we put together a board, which again represented all the sectors. We then decided to launch in Ontario first, which we did, I think it was January this year. What we do there is we bring ecosystems, we brought ecosystems from Ireland, from Finland, and what was the other? Oh, France, into Canada to say, here's how we started. These are the benefits we have got. That is why you should have an ecosystem in Canada. So we're not asking people to believe me or just a mantra you're asking people to listen to people who actually genuinely benefit from taking our methodology. And as a result of that, we already, for example, are doing business between Canada and Europe, between companies and between organizations. Final example of that is just yesterday, no, sorry, the day before yesterday, the Canadian Alliance, together with us in Europe, 
jointly bid for some European and Canadian funding for a project which then involves Canadian members and European members. And that's all since January. Mm. So, you know, there's a need. There's a need for organization, leadership and direction. So that tends to work. And, and, and frankly, it becomes easier with time, Dan, because we've made a lot of mistakes already. We, we don't make the same ones. We just invent new ones, I guess, as we move along. But we're very much in startup mentality and mode. Try it. Doesn't work. Dump it. Move on to the next thing. Right. And, and I think the real key is that you're carrying on those conversations. You have those ongoing conversations with people. And you've talked about it, uh, ECH Alliance being a membership organization. What does it take to be a member? How do people listening find out okay. as individuals, as a companies, and what do they get and what do they contribute? Okay. So in summary, we have devised and we, we review it regularly. What we do is we welcome members from all those sectors. We're not interested in being a silo organization. So we insist we have a broad range. For not-for-profit organizations generally, we give free membership. What does that do for them? It does a couple of things. One, it allows them to understand what's going on in other countries. It allows other countries to be aware of that organization. So very often we help with profile raising because we keep finding people who are doing the most amazingly good stuff, but nobody's ever heard of them. Uh, and we bring them to attention. For startup companies, uh, we charge. We charge €450 Euros a year only. What do they get for that? First, in their own region, they come to meetings. We had 62, I think it was, startups in Northern Ireland yesterday at a meeting, right? What does that do? That allows them to put a pop-up stand, a roll-up stand, some people call them, free of charge. So in that room in the Belfast City Hall yesterday, you had people from the Department of Health, from the hospitals and the doctors' groups, etc., and from other companies, including multinational companies over there, the opportunity of saying, God, I didn't know there was a piece of technology that did that. So we, we give them that opportunity and they are able, as an ECH Alliance member, albeit only paying us 450 euros a year, to select and go to any one of our 100 plus 120 meetings a year anywhere in Europe. And they're going to be walking in there as an ECH Alliance member and into the same mix or matrix of players in the room. Now, if I'm a startup, and I've done quite a lot of startups, that is a gift. They don't have to spend the time trying to figure out who are the players in a particular region. They simply go to our quarterly meetings. Then you move up, depending on your, your uh, revenue and turnover. Uh, the highest rate is for multinational, well, it usually is multinationals, uh, is €10,000 a year. What do they get out of it? Not only the ability to use their sales teams and others in different regions, but also, very importantly for them to be able to view startups and innovative companies, which they will, in fact, sometimes invest in or collaborate with. So we are, we are like, as somebody said to me yesterday, like a marketplace. You know, we brought everything together in one place. You turn up and you look and say, what would I like to buy or work with? So that's what people get. And um, it was difficult at the beginning because we didn't have enough of a, a size to be able to persuade people. But we persuaded enough to get it going, and now we have less difficulty uh, getting members, but we welcome members from across all of those sectors. Right, and all around the world as well, I imagine, right? Yep, absolutely. Great. Well, I know it's. I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit, but I'll, get, I'll give you a pretty <laughs> wide berth here uh, in terms of trying to give me – you've been doing this six years. You've done this. You've created this ecosystem around the world. You've really talked about the methodology, bringing people together. Yes. Can you give me a couple – things that spring to mind in terms of some great examples of the progress because sometimes in this in our business 
we talk about all the problems and we need to because the problems are affecting people's lives and outcomes yes. today. Uh, and the things we do today are going to impact outcomes in the years to come. So we, we do need to think about those problems and talk about it. But sometimes we forget that even in, in the past two, five years, we've made some significant strides. And I know that you have been a part of and know and work with a lot of people that have made this progress. So can you give me a couple examples of, of things sure. across the world, anything that comes to mind about great examples of people working together and making a change in healthcare? Yes, there are lots of them, I'm glad to say. Um, I, I, don't, I want to make it clear that I'm not claiming that that we, the Alliance, made everything happen because clearly it's our members who make things happen. But we provide the framework and, and, and the umbrella. People often refer to us as a neutral umbrella. So let me give you an example of one of our, our, our companies, uh, which just completed actually a program, uh, initially a, a pilot program, on how do you deal with people who have got phobias, right? So you come into the whole mental health area in this. One of our, uh, I mean, quite brilliant members is an organization in London called the South London and Maudsley Mental Health Trust. So it's an NHS hospital group. It's been doing mental health since the year 1147. And they literally were the first mental health institute to be founded through philanthropy actually now what they have done to move it move us further forward i won't take you through the whole history of 1147 they are one of the most innovative hospital groups i've ever met anywhere what they did was they went out and realized that you have to use modern methods such as uh, social media such as ipads iphones and all that to actually move into this 21st century and to actually address certain people's needs so specific example they went out and they recruited a number of experts from the games industry. This is very unusual for an NHS trust. Mm -hmm. They employed them. They then gave them facilities and access to data, etc., etc. As a result of that, among other things, they have created a virtual reality company, which they've just spun out as a company. What did they do? They took a phobia of some people who, A, have a fear of going outside their own home, B, a particular gentleman had a, has been in his own home for nearly four years because he won't leave. And one of the reasons he, you, you, you learn as, as you hear uh, wh why, why won't you leave home? It's not just a fear of open space. It's more the fear that as he travels, say, through London, he may have to go to a pub use a public toilet. He has a phobia about using a public toilet, about cleanliness and all sorts of things. Over a period of a number of months, through a virtual reality program, they were able, in the comfort of his own home, to encourage him and to enable him to be able to go out in London. Now, they dealt with that particular phobia in the comfort and security of his own home. So he was less stressed. He was willing to participate. What's happening now? That particular program is now, we have been promoting that program at different events and different ecosystems. And the guy who runs the program will now be doing a roadshow across Europe to present not only that particular solution, but others. And we linked them, for example, with people like uh, Oculus Rift at a recent conference. And they're now collaborating because Oculus Rift, who do the virtual reality headsets, obviously need use cases to prove that from a health perspective, there are specific proven uses. Now, that's another example where you've taken modern technology, you've joined the games industry with the NHS together with major technology providers and then introduced that to others who, of course, have the same issues throughout the world. 
That is a great example because it's not just talking about health, it's talking about mental health, which is often very closely associated with someone's physical health is their mental state. Well, it has a huge impact on it. I mean, it always does. Absolutely. And virtual reality holds a tremendous promise for mental health issues like the ones you've, you just spoke about because they don't have to leave their home. Their issue is they can't leave their home. They have a phobia about leaving their home and this allows them to receive care and there can be support groups and virtual reality simulations and consultations and all sorts of things that can happen through the use of technology. So, um, you know, Brian, something I'm not sure if you've looked into, I know you've done some work, obviously, with the New York eHealth Collaborative, and you've done some speaking over there. But there's a group called Node Health. Have you um, no, met I don't know that one. from Keep Node going. Health? Because I know you focus a lot about methodologies and pro promotion and speaking with people. But the yes. Node Health is a group that's being driven uh, out of Mount Sinai by right. Shisha Treasure. I believe it also is a not-for-profit. I'll have to check the status of it as a company. Right. But really, they're looking for global partners to contribute to the global body of evidence around digital health methodologies to create the impetus that will affect the change. So they're very much about the data. Uh, I think you're very much about the methodology and the, the, the people aspect of it. So there might be some good collaboration. Please, if you know them, just connect me. Because I, you see, this is a good example again, Dan, just genuinely a good example of where everyone you talk to and you listen to, you realize, of course, that they know things you don't know. Therefore, if you're transparent and open and share it, you tend to actually learn a lot and then you have to do something about it. I think that's the last bit. that I, It's about doing something about exactly. the knowledge. But you see, everybody, if they stay in the silos, they do some good work. But it is the breaking down of the silos, the destroying of the silos that I actually think the ECH Alliance is all about. I'm glad you point that out because actually that's the whole reason I started this podcast as well is to, to right. have these sorts of conversations like you and I are having and you and I have spoken in the past. I've heard you speak in the past and and now we're sharing this conversation with people all around the globe who will be able to learn more about your organization itself as well as your members, which I know is the most important thing to you is really to promote the, the members and the work that the members yes. are doing. And, and now actually... ECH Alliance and Digital Health Today are working in concert to help profile some of the different projects and, and leaders and members of your organization to further enhance Indeed. that. So, so I appreciate the Indeed. opportunity to work with you, and it's great to have you on as, as a representative of the organization globally, and then we can dive into some of the specific examples around the world uh, of where people are making an impact. I can't let you go without asking you about Brexit. So it's been uh, – so, so at this point, Prime Minister Theresa May has triggered Article 50. I know soon after the vote in June last year, you put out a, a post and an update to all your members about what you thought it would happen. If you could take out your crystal ball now and gaze into that for a second and uh, let me know, what do you think this means for businesses working in health and innovation in the near and longer term? First of all, you're right. No one knows. We have gone round and spent a lot of time talking to our members because if you think about it, we have a lot of members and ecosystems in the UK and, of course, a lot of ecosystem members throughout Europe. So it's fascinating for us to be able to hear their opinions on what's happening. First of all, I have to say that almost everybody we meet, and this is not a political statement because I'm not a politician, um, <clears throat> regrets that there's a Brexit because it's created uncertainty. There are many who hope that it will be good in the end. But because a bit like our methodology, because no one knows what that end is or how you're going to get there, uh, we're in for a period of a number of years of significant concern. So take our sector then. There are a couple of things which I hope will happen. Whether they will, I don't know. Right now, 
there is an acceptance, I think, in Europe that A, it's going to happen. B, they're talking about the divorce terms, as they call it. There'll be a lot of hot air and you know positioning and so on. In our sector, we are lobbying very hard in the UK and in Europe on behalf of our members, and I think the sector generally, that whilst many things will change, there should be some things which should stay the same. Let me give you an example. Right now, the UK is entitled, or UK entities are entitled to participate in European programmes, including Horizon 2020 and many others. There is a real concern that when Britain, UK leaves Europe, then UK entities will no longer be able to access not only the money, and this is an important point, Dan, not only the money that comes for being involved in these projects, but the benefits you achieve by being in collaboration with similar organisations. So it's money, yes, but connections and connectivity and joint working as well. Now, given the number of years Britain's been in Europe, when you realise how long they've been there, we've all got many connections throughout Europe, if you look at it from a UK perspective. Everybody I've spoken to, everyone, and I haven't had a dissenting voice, wants those connections to continue. So if anything, they're asking us, the European Connected Netherlands, to step up the cooperation and the relationships between Europe and the UK. Not to diminish them because there's now separate countries, but to actually enhance them. So we're going to do that. We're doing a lot more than maybe we would have done at this moment. The second part is we are lobbying very hard for the British government to build into the, to the, the divorce settlement a, an agreement similar to what Canada and Europe have done just recently. You may or may not have read the, the, the trade agreement or the relationship with Norway. I'm not talking politics here. I'm talking about real things. So companies and organizations in Norway can continue to participate in European projects, even though Norway is not a member of Europe, the European Union, right? How do they do that? The Norwegian government set aside a certain amount of money to assist their local entities. So, yes, you can participate, but Europe cannot give you money because you're outside Europe. Norway say, no worries, we will put our own fund together and we will match what is needed as a contribution from Norway for our entities to continue to work with you. We just did a, a program, as I mentioned earlier, just this week, where the Canadian uh, Research Council has money set aside to encourage their entities in Canada to participate in European projects. So we're lobbying that, that the UK government should create a fund along the lines of Norway or Canada and continue, therefore, to allow cooperation and funding across uh, all those entities in spite of Brexit. And our members are helping us by lobbying as well and making their own local countries and organizations push for that as well. Well, I think the key is that it is a period of uncertainty. But as you mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, that that uncertainty can also create opportunities. And I mean, just as you did when you were in Hong Kong and there was uncertainty about the British handover of Hong Kong to China. I think there's going to be opportunities that present themselves uh, within the UK and across Europe. And hopefully there will be companies that spot that opportunity and use it as a reason to invest and to be proactive as opposed to uh, a rationale to be cautious and, and reserved. That's exactly why. And, and that's where we hope to play it, you know, a, a small part in the overall picture, but nevertheless, hopefully a very effective part as well. There are six questions that I'd like to ask all the guests that come on the show. Can you take a few more minutes with me? Go ahead. Yes, sure, of course. Can you give me a saying, quote, or a phrase that motivates you? Do good. 
What advice do you have for others working to innovate in healthcare? Recognize that your idea may not be the only idea in the world or the best idea in the world, but it is your idea. Do not ever give up. Be persistent. Be sensible, of course. If you keep hitting your head up against a brick wall, you usually bleed. So stop doing that. But don't give up. Listen, above all. Broaden your connections. Listen to other people. And then you will find a way through. Too many people give up too early uh, because they're frustrated that nobody thinks that their idea is the best in the world. What book do you recommend to our listeners and why? Well, I've just finished a book, uh, which is relevant, I think, uh, which I think is a wonderful book. It's written by one of our members, so I have to make it clear that we just we always promote our members, of course. There's a Dr. Joe Cavedar, you may know, K-V-E-D-A-R, yep, uh, who is in the Connected Health Centre and Partners Healthcare in Boston. Partners Healthcare were one of our first ever members. Joe is one of the top people, I know you'll know this, in the U.S., who is regarded as a bit of something of an expert in connected health. His most recent book, and he's on to his second one already, would you believe, his most recent book is called The Internet of Healthy Things. It's available, of course, where else but Amazon. We have promoted it at all of our ecosystem events. It's achieved very nice sales in Europe as a result, just to say we don't get any benefit financially of that. But I'll tell you what I like about it. It is not a technology book. It's about the use of technology, but not a boring, uh, nerdy type book. It gives specific examples of where technologies by joining retailers, for example, with technology companies and consumers has actually had a direct positive impact on the citizens' care, both health and other care, wellness and so on, but also has an impact on profitability. So it's well worth reading. The Internet of Healthy Things by Dr. Joe Cavader. Brian, what technology besides a smartphone do you use that you wouldn't want to live without? At the moment, it is definitely my iPad because it's enabled me to move away from carrying a computer around. I'm not technical anyway. Uh, the fact that a two or three-year-old can use an iPad means there must be hope for me. Uh, and I, I, I literally, the things that I carry when I travel now are my iPhone and my iPad. And it works so brilliantly. And it's a great social tool as well. That's why I like it, actually. I think that the ability to use FaceTime, uh, for example, between my grandsons, our grandsons and, and their grandmother, has really encouraged my wife to pick up technology, which she otherwise would have said, it's nothing to do with me. So, you know, there is a social aspect to iPad, which I think is really powerful, both in our sector, but just in the human race. So I, I couldn't do without my iPad. And lastly, we make a contribution to a charity in appreciation of your time on the show. Uh, what charity have you selected, and can you tell us a little bit about what they do? Yes, uh, there's a charity in my home country, again, called Age NI, Age Northern Ireland. And what they do is they provide a counselling service, and they service also to represent people. They mainly represent people of 80 and upwards. They represent younger people as well, but that's the category that seems to the least power. Uh, and they do the most amazing work of alleviating loneliness, uh, having people go out and visit, uh, and actually just hold people's hands and chat to them for 10, 15 minutes. But we'll include the link to Age NI on the website, on the show notes for this episode, as well as uh, include them on the charity page where we list all the different charities Perfect. that we've contributed to on behalf of our, our guests. So thank you very much for that. Brian, let me ask you, how can listeners follow you and your work and keep in touch with the ECH Alliance going forward? Well, I think, first of all, the, the, the easiest way, frankly, is just to be visiting our website. People should can also follow us on the, our own Twitter feed, which is at ECH Alliance. We do encourage people, first of all, to register, even if they're not joining us, 
they can register on the our website and they get all of our newsletters and stuff like that so they can keep up to date with what we're doing. Excellent. So we'll have a link to the website. We'll have a link to that Twitter feed. Can people follow you on LinkedIn as well? Uh, yes, I'm on LinkedIn. In fact, we have an ECA to Lance group on LinkedIn, but they can also follow me on LinkedIn as well. Brilliant. Well, I'll include links to both of those. Uh, Brian, Please. is there anything else that you'd like to share with the audience before I let you go? I, I guess I'll share one of my frustrations, that I hear many, many good people complaining about what they, things they can't get done. Okay? And my response always is, so what? What are you doing about it? Not what are they doing about it. What are you personally doing about it? So I'm sorry to be so uh, at you and in your face, but I really get frustrated when people who have the ability, who have the, the, the intellectual capacity, and in very many cases have more power than they think, simply spend half their lives complaining. Stop complaining. Start doing. Brian, I love that you said that. You're an instigator. You're a change maker. You're a disruptor. You're a fixer. And you're definitely a doer. You're getting stuff done out there. So thanks very much for taking the time no. and sharing no. all of your experience with the, the listeners. And hopefully a lot of people will take the opportunity to become members and be a part of your organization and contribute to the work that you guys are doing. Thank you, Dan. And thank you for the work that you're doing as well. Well, there you have it. That was Brian O'Connor, investor, consultant, entrepreneur, and now chair of the ECH Alliance. Be sure to follow them on Twitter and LinkedIn and get involved through their website. I'm excited for the opportunity to work with ECH Alliance and support the great work being done by their members and partners around the globe. You can find Brian and many of his colleagues from the ECH Alliance at the eHealth Week that's being held in Malta on the 10th to the 12th of May. So do stop by, learn more about the ECH Alliance and how you can be a part. We have more guests coming up diving into AI, telemedicine, biomarkers, and more. Don't miss a single episode. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. All those links can be found on the website along with the show notes of this episode at digitalhealthtoday.com slash 24. Many thanks to our sponsor, Bayer Grants for Apps, for their support of this podcast. Don't forget to check out their website at grantsforapps.com. Applications to their accelerator are open now and close on May 31st, 2017. And also check out their new DealMaker program. Applications for that are open until the 30th of June. Don't miss out. Get in touch with me if you'll be at the Cube Tech Fair in Berlin being held this week on the 10th to the 12th of May. And next week, you'll find me in London at the World Precision Medicine Conference on the 17th to the 19th. Check out more great events happening all around the world on our website, digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash events. Thanks for tuning in. That's all for me for now. Until next time, keep on innovating.